Does it ever seem that things just don't go your way as much or as easily as they used to? Maybe there's something you can do to change that. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. This is the program that looks at aging in a whole new way as a time where you can use your experience and your wisdom to accomplish more than you ever have before. And in the next hour, you're going to hear from some pretty interesting people who can offer suggestions of how you can make that happen. Yeah, speaking of interesting, in the next hour, uh, he's an illusionist whose high-profile feats of endurance have made him a national celebrity. We're talking about David Blaine, and he's going to let us in on the kind of mental preparation it takes to accomplish the things that he does that we never thought were possible. Then we're going to look back at the life of the founder of the National Center on Aging. This is a guy who left us with some critical advice for what we need to do to take care of our mental health as we grow older. Also, we're going to take part in a reunion for the ages as the 1980 State of Florida women's basketball high school champs get back together and take to the court once again. But first, the unexpected importance of friends without benefits and why they may be necessary to maximize your longevity. Ordinary people, extraordinary lives. It's time for Growing Bolder. talk now about something you we all learned when we were a little kid how to make friends how to be a friend how to keep friends quick story you know when I was a little kid growing up maybe you had a similar experience because I think a lot of us had the same thing old man Armbruster he lived in a small house at the end of the street hardly ever saw the guy but boy did we know Don't ride your bike in his driveway, and heaven help you if you step on the grass. He was a stereotypical old guy for that era, alone, angry, hostile. Did you ever wonder if that could be us in the future? Dr. Marissa Franco is a psychologist, professor, and a friendship expert. She says we're headed towards an epidemic of loneliness that can leave us all bitter, hateful, even violent, and end up taking years off of our lives. And it's why she wrote a book called Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. Let's say hi to Dr. Franco. How are you doing today, Marissa? Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm sure when you chose this topic, you were thinking, well, to some people, this is going to sound like a trivial, maybe not the most important thing in the world to discuss. But when you were trying to decide whether or not to, you know, give years of your life to creating this book, what made you realize how big a deal loneliness and friendship really is? Yeah. So for me, I I came from this place of really repentance for how I viewed friendship in the past you know, I was going through these romantic relationship breakups and feeling so bad and so worthless. So I started this wellness group with my friends where we met up, cooked, did yoga together, meditated. And it was so healing because of the friendship, really, outside of just the wellness. And just seeing how much my friends really loved me made me question some of the beliefs that I had about platonic love. I thought romantic love was the only love that could suggest that I was worthy and the only love that really mattered. And even though I had this connection right in front of me, it almost didn't count as connection to me. And I realized, wow, you know, that can really make me be lonely. It's like there's 
gold under my feet, but I think it's cement. And I felt like this was a reflective of a, a larger culture that really devalues, underestimates a whole entire form of connection, despite the fact that we're just so lonely. And so my, one of my biggest motivations with writing platonic was just to really begin to level this huge hierarchy that we tend to place on love. I, I guess, you know, we're probably all over it now and, and the the trying to figure out how it could be that I mean, we're surrounded by, by more people than ever. We've got social media, smartphones, FaceTime, apps that'll help us find anything we want at a moment's notice. Yet it seems we are probably more lonely than ever. How, how can that be? Yeah. So Robert Putnam, he has this great book, Bowling Alone. He starts looking at why this trend really started in the 1950s of people being less and less involved in their communities. And one of his biggest takeaways is that it was the creation of the television because the television is sort of this low-hanging fruit that gives us something to do, that gives us a snack of connection, right? Because we're, re- we're watching people's lives, but never gives us a full meal. And so what he kind of talks about is how the television privatized leisure. Before that, we would spend leisure around other people publicly in community with people. And then around 2012, we saw loneliness surge even more than um, the trends that it was headed towards already. And around 2012 was really when smartphones became a lot more popular. Um, And obviously, it's the relationship between technology and connection is so complicated. There are ways that it can foster connection. But unfortunately, we tend to use it in ways that don't. You know, the best way to use technology is to foster in-person interaction, to reach out on technology, to actually see people and interact with people in person. But when we use it to replace in-person interaction, like we would have been hanging out, but now we're just on our phones at home, right? That's when you see us getting very, very lonely. It's a great point. It's like we're friends with our avatars instead of the real people. And, you know, it, it, your book is so much more than just a book that points these things out. I mean, you, you've you got a, a really varied background and you talk in the book about the science of attachment. So tell us about that and what do we need to know about it? We all, despite not knowing it, have these templates for how other people treat us and these strategies to respond to our templates, right? And these templates really develop in our childhood based on our relationships with our parents and evolve from there. If we had a healthy childhood, our template is that people will love and accept us and we tend to be securely attached and very good at making friends and creating connections. If our early template was that our parents will mistreat us or won't be responsive to us, then we become insecurely attached, either anxiously attached, which is we always fear that people will abandon us, or avoidantly attached, which is we just don't trust other people. And this really affects how we show up later in our friendships, such that these attachment styles sort of become self-fulfilling prophecies. The anxiously attached person, thinking people are rejecting them, tends to see rejection when it's not there, right? Let's say a friend is maybe a little quieter than usual. They'll then withdraw from that perceived rejection, And they'll reject the other person. And then that person will then reject them, right? So so our attachment styles tend to be confirmation biases and self-fulfilling prophecies. We only see information that matches them and we disregard information that doesn't match them. And so because of that, you know, based on our attachment style, we engage in certain behaviors that may make it harder or easier to foster really great. Yeah, I guess acquaintances are really easy and we're all pretty good at that, but real 
real friendships, that's a lot more difficult. You know, I, I could ask you uh, to share a number of reasons that we're all not good at those friendships, but let's focus instead on things we all can do to get better at them. What, what can we do? What practices can we put in place? How do we make and keep real friends? Yeah, I'll give you a few steps. So don't assume it happens organically. It did when we were kids because we have um, Rebecca Adams shares. We saw each other every day and we were vulnerable and that creates organic connection. We don't have that as adults. That infrastructure is not there. You can't just rely on things happening organically. And in fact, according to the research, that's related to being lonelier over time. Um, The second is to assume people like you. Because when researchers told people to assume this, they became warmer, friendlier, and more open, even though this was actually a lie, um, when they went in to interact with the group. And it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Third thing I suggest is to join something that's repeated over time. Again, related to that repeated, unplanned interaction. Because you capitalize on something called the mere exposure effect. Our unconscious tendency to like people simply because they are familiar to us. When researchers planted people, women, into a psychology lecture, the students didn't even remember any of the women, but they liked the woman who showed up for the most lectures, 20% more than the one who showed up for the least. So it's our unconscious tendency to like people that are familiar. And once you join that repeated group, maybe it's a hobby that you do in community with others, generate exclusivity by asking people to hang out one-on-one before or after the group, just saying like, hey, It's been so nice to connect with you. I'd love to connect outside of this group. If you'd be open to it, could we exchange contact information? What about the thinking that you really can't be a good friend to anybody else if if you don't like yourself or or maybe you don't trust yourself or don't know if you have anything to offer? Could, Could part of the solution be that we have to work on ourselves before we reach out to others? Well, it's quite complex because we work on ourselves through our relationships too. So... Um, you know, what, what your, your question makes me think about something called self-verification theory, where these researchers found that people that have low self-esteem prefer interacting with someone who sees them more negatively than someone that sees them more positively, not because they don't want to be affirmed and loved, but because when they are, they don't trust it because it doesn't match their sense of self. And so it's either people will reject me and I'll engage with them or they'll accept me and I'll think they're manipulating me. Right. And so that's really how our own sense of self can really impact our ability to connect well with others. I suggest for those people with low self-esteem to to be more aware that this process is happening and to savor signals of safety from other people. Right. You know, you feel like you have low self-esteem and others mistreat you and then you only see those moments when it's true. Um, but when someone smiles at you, returns your text, compliments you, like, don't assume that they're just saying that or it's because they don't really know you and you're really an imposter, like, actually pause and receive that comment and let it sink into your body. Because when something stirs an emotion on us, from us, it triggers norepinephrine and dopamine, which are these hormones that help change our brains, according to psychologist Rick Hansen. It's, it's so interesting because it, it's much more complicated than it seems from the surface. You, you mentioned a couple things that, that we do wrong. What, what, what are some of the most common things that we do? I guess it's maybe self-sabotage. Uh, what are some of the things that we're doing wrong as, as, as we're trying to find good friendships? Man, I'll tell you all the things that I did wrong. So, you know, I used to think I can make friends if I come off as smart, insightful, funny, persuasive, entertaining. But in fact, this is the least value, qu- valuable quality people report in their friendships. And the most valuable is p- 
people want to be around someone who makes them feel like they matter. And so being good at friendships is less about who you are and more about how you treat people. Do you make other people feel like they belong? I think a lot of the times our insecurities make us so much so focused on how people are treating us. Are they reaching out to me? You know, are they being vulnerable with me? Are they making me feel like I belong? But we don't hold ourselves accountable in the same way. For me in college, going into a social group, just being like, everybody's clingy. Nobody introduced themselves to me. I feel lonely. But did I introduce myself to anyone else? Did I make anyone else feel like they belong? And I didn't. And that's our egocentric bias. We think so much more about how people affect us and so much less about how we're affecting people. But to be a good friend, we need to think more about how we're affecting people and whether we are making themselves, making them feel loved and valued. Such a great point. We're talking with uh, Dr. Marissa Franco about friendship and platonic relationships. And it's a big concern, a big issue for everybody. But I think particularly as we age, age brings isolation. We're not seeing as many people. We're not doing as many things. Our world shrinks. Maybe not as much as the old guy in the house at the end of the street. But, but, but what, do we, what do we do about that? How do we keep ourselves from, from you know, just not being a part of things anymore? So interestingly, you know, on research on people that retire finds that the people that, um, you know, adjust best who maintain highest well-being when retiring are the people who replace those social interactions that they might have had from the job. And so I think we can't think of friendship making as something that just happens when we're young, right? We have to see it as something we need to continue to engage in and invest in throughout our entire lifespans because, again, Actually, like friendship affects your well-being more when you're older than when you're younger. And loneliness is one of the biggest predictors of mortality, even more so than your diet and your exercise. And so if you're older and you're like, I try to stay healthy, you know, I exercise, I, um, you know, I eat the right foods. Another way you should try to stay healthy is by being very intentional about building relationships, not accepting social isolation not assuming nobody wants to hang out with me. Everybody has their groups, which is, I think, something we can assume more and more as we get older and really putting in the effort using some of the tips I shared earlier of joining that social group, assuming people like you um, and initiating with them or even reconnecting with people from your life. Because one of the, the most common reasons that friendships end is simply because we've fallen out of touch, but we still kind of like each other. Um, And so beginning to really make that effort because connection is worth it and it will add more and more years to your life. And not only that, but your life will be more quality too. Loneliness is one of the biggest predictors of mortality. Loneliness can take years off your life. Low socialization can affect your health. Yes, powerfully and strongly. Again, meta-analyses that combine all the existing research show us that diet and exercise affects how long we live, like 20 to 30% impact on how long we live, whereas social connection in the 40s, 45% um, relationship with how long we live. And so what that means is really that one of the, the best things we could do for our health is really to stay socially connected because when we're lonely, you know, think about it. Historically, if you were on the savanna and lonely, you were in danger, right? You're completely alone and there's a lot of dangerous things around you. So what happens when you're lonely is replicating that situation, your body goes into threat processes where you start becoming inflamed, you become hypervigilant for signs that you might be rejected by other people. I call loneliness not just a state of mind, but a way of viewing the world. You actually report liking other people less, having less compassion for humanity. You 
focus less on others and social interactions and more on yourself because you get into this really self-protective place and your body's working on overdrive because you're in a state of threat for a, a prolonged period of time that promotes a lot of wear and tear on your body. And so just like to be at our homeostasis, right? I need to eat so I'm not hungry. I need to drink so I'm not thirsty. We need to maintain a constant level of connectedness for us to be functioning. You know, that makes me think of, of another issue. Mom and dad don't go out much anymore. They don't really want to anymore. What can we do about that? You know, I feel like it's really hard to force people, but, I, you know, I can suggest some things whenever, because I get this question about wives wanting their husbands to get out and make friends, you know, suggest to them, ask them what are their hobbies or interests and if they would be willing to pursue that in community with other people, right? Because that's the thing that's going to happen that's going to give you the biggest bang for your buck. You make one decision and it's almost like making a million tiny decisions because you're going to show up each week and you're going to have that time to socialize with people. And because you have that mere exposure effect in place, things are going to happen a little bit more organically. But the second thing is, you know, I think we need to change our script for friendship because I think a lot of us don't make friends because we think it should be easy and we think it should always be positive and we think it should be good vibes only when we know from our romantic relationships that that's not true of intimacy. Intimacy takes work. It takes intention. You know, my niece read my book and she said, for friendship to happen, someone has to be brave. So be brave. You know, it seems that everything that you've written in Platonic, everything you've studied, it's more than just relationships. Everything that we've been talking about in this interview, aren't these the very same things that we need to know in order to live a fulfilling and full life? Yeah. I mean, it's our sense of selves and they're so deeply interwoven, how we connect with others and how we how we view ourselves um, so, so deeply connected. So I think platonic really is my encouragement of people to reconcile with who you are because your relationships are a reflection of how you feel about yourself. And if your relationships grow, you grow too and vice versa in this sort of bi-directional relationship. I love that answer. And, and, and the other thing that I love about what you've done with this book is you're firing a flare in a direction that not enough people are looking. It's a really important topic. So now you have our attention. Help us tie a bow around this thing so we will remember. What do you want to make clear in our minds? I want you to consider that people are less likely to reject you than you think they are, according to the research, and that you're going to have to try so if you're listening to this, you know, pick up your phone, text someone you haven't talked to in a while and just say like, hey, I was just thinking of you and wanted to check in. How's it going? And take it from there. Very interesting, very relevant and important to every single one of us. That is psychologist and professor Dr. Marissa Franco talking about her book Platonic, how the science of attachment can help you make and keep friends. And it's also more than that, as we said. It's kind of a way to keep ourselves happy and healthy and to keep our communities, our society, and our culture stronger, more involved, and to make it more caring, which is something that we will all wish for as we get older. Great topic and great conversation. What kind of a mindset does it take to hang from a crane in a glass box for days or to do any of a number of other death-defying stunts? We're about to find out how that mindset might help you from the one and only David Blaine. He's next on Growing Boulder.
Support for Growing Boulder, provided by Caring Transitions, a senior move resource to help families ease the stress of life's transitions, offering relocation, home cleanouts, and the resale of everyday household items. Locations near you at caringtransitions.com. How do you know if something's the truth? I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder. Is it true that seeing is believing? Well, our next guest thrives on blurring that line and making all of us question everything. He is the greatest illusionist, endurance artist, and extreme performer alive today. The guy's been buried underground, hung from a crane in a plexiglass box. He didn't eat for 44 days, didn't breathe for 17 minutes. He's been electrocuted and carried away by helium balloons over 20,000 feet up. Now he's bringing his show to Vegas for his very first residency there, performing at the newest theater on the Strip, the beautiful Resorts World. And his act, folks, is unlike anything you've ever seen. It's an experience you will think about for the rest of your life. Let's say hello to Mr. David Blaine. David, how are you? Hey, Bill. How are you? Thanks for having me. You know, we we are so fascinated by you, and we're going to get into why, but I, I'm guessing this Vegas residency, you're, you're just going to blow people's minds. Well, this is, this is basically, I walked into the theater, and I looked up, and I saw 85-foot ceilings, and it still felt, felt intimate in every seat, and I was so excited that I could build my dream show in this room. So this is everything that I've ever wanted to do all rolled up into one night. And it's years of R&D and thoughts and research and training and practice. And then in the middle of that, there's a magic show. (laughs) You know, you are so much more than the stunts that you do. You are so much more than just the things that we tick off there like in an intro. And on Growing Boulder, we always try to inspire people to have adventures, to take risks. And that's something that you've always done really to a level never before seen. Why, David, instead of being frozen in a block of ice, why not just do a card trick? Why not take the comfortable route through life? That's a good question. I do feel like when I am in in an uncomfortable situation, I do drive harder. I do work harder. And when I work harder, drive harder, for me, the creative process is boosted and ideas come out that you would never normally think of. When I'm comfortable sitting by the ocean, you know, drinking a pina colada, eating whatever I want, that's all I'm doing. You know, and I might read a good book and be inspired a bit, but, but when I'm in, in, in an extreme situation of uncomfort, when I break the comfort zone and go to places that I've never been or try to do things that I didn't think were possible, even getting up on stage just to give a talk like I forced myself to do at the TED conference, that was a complete state of, of oh, my God, this, how am I going to pull this off? But then you work really hard to pull it off. So I, I like putting myself in the fire pit because I do feel that that is the most inspired place to be. So that, that, that always seems to excite me. And what an important point, David, that that is because you're telling us, you're teaching us that we need uncertainty in our own lives, challenges, and a little bit of fear to push us because that's living life to the fullest. And if we just go through life, retire, move to that cabin in the woods, well, that's not much different than burying yourself under 40 tons of concrete. 
Right. But doing things like that could be the challenge. So, you know, going into complete isolation and living in the woods with nothing could be the challenge. So there's also lots of ways to push yourself, challenge yourself and do things that you wouldn't normally do and, and, and excite that part of your curiosity and then come up with things that you could never think of or, or dream of. And, 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 and there's lots of ways to get there. It's even like, you know, deciding that you're going to stand up in front of your friends and, and try something that you've never done, you know, perform a card trick, but unlike what you've ever done and break that zone. And it really does lead to, and by the way, sometimes it leads to failure. And when it leads to failure, that's also, you know, there's a Churchill quote where he says success is the ability to go from one failure to the next with enthusiasm. And it's kind of like that, what I live by. So just putting yourself in a place where you can very easily fail but you can also do something and learn something that you haven't done before is, is for me, just the, 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 the best. See, this is what makes David Blaine a cut above everybody else because you're going for entertainment. You're going for, yes, all the things that you get, but you walk away thinking about all the rest of your – you think about yourself because you can relate to him up there. And, David, I've always looked at magicians – not really as performers, but teachers teaching us critical thinking to question what we see. Do you agree with that? And, and, and what, what are you trying to teach us? Well, I think great magic does involve not just, you know, logic and science and math. I think performance is a part of it. And I think psychology is a really deep part of making magic good because understanding the psychology of how the brain works and how people think and kind of edging into that is is what makes a performance great versus good so so in that case how, how do you not eat how do you not eat for 44 days how do you not breathe for 17 minutes how do you get frozen in a block of ice what have you learned and what don't we understand about what we are all capable of well well the first thing that i've learned is you know when you when you hear of something that somebody has done so when you hear something that a person has done, my starting point is I believe that if something is done by one, it can be done by others. So as soon as I see something like, oh, wow, this guy went 10 minutes without breathing, is that real? Is it not real? But I go with the angle that it might be real. Then I start researching, looking into papers published, meeting with doctors and asking all sorts of questions. And usually doctors' response is, no, it's not possible, you'll die. So I don't take that as the final conclusion. So then I keep going, keep trying, keep digging, and then I speak to physiologists, guys at NASA, and things like that that are looking into what the human can endure, what 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 we've survived in the past, and they use that as research. And I say, oh, wow, there's an instance of a guy supposedly that did go 10 minutes without breathing. And then scientifically I look at things that happened in the world, like, and I reached out to those people. So there's a kid that was under an icy river for 45 minutes and brought up to full recovery with no brain damage. So I reach out to him, and I speak to him, and I'm like, how is that possible? And, and you know, everybody says, oh, it's a miracle, and, and it is partially that, but it's also that the human body does these miraculous things on its own to survive in many cases. So then I start to figure out, oh, how could that be done? Is it about making yourself really cold? Is it about shutting yourself down? Is it lowering the heart rate? And then that combined leads to learning how to hold your breath for 20 minutes. And, David, the cool thing is, is is people have researched. I mean, doctors have been able to, to monitor you to see exactly what happens. We don't really know. You're not taking risks just to do it. You don't have a death wish. I mean, what we're all trying to do is figure out how to live longer. You too? That's right. 
That's exactly right. Exactly right. And it's also discovering what the body is able to do. And it's not like a jump, too. So it's like when I learn to hold my breath, I start at three minutes and I go to four, then five. Then 5.59 to 6 took me a year. So to go from 5 minutes and 59 seconds to 6 minutes took me a year. And then once I crossed 6, it was a really fast pace going up, and I got to 7, then finally 7.47. Then I went for the world record, failed, then shifted it and tried for it again, but this time on pure oxygen and got up to 20 minutes and 2 seconds in rehearsal and then did 17.04 as, as a world record at the time. Now the record has been pushed further because I think I ignited that spark a little bit and now it's at 24 minutes and three seconds. So it is incredible what, 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 what we are able to do and, and the limits of, 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 I think of our capabilities are, are really reduced by our own negativity. Whereas if we push slowly, carefully and study and surround ourselves with people that inspire us or that have really good knowledge, then we can get there. And again, listening to the nose is, is not usually what I do. I, 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 I take information from all sources and treat it seriously, but then I still look at other examples as hope and inspiration. You've said so many incredible things in this interview, David. I want to thank you so much for it. You, you're not a magician. What you do is, like you said, you light the spark inside all of us to make us think that maybe things aren't as they appear. Folks, if you get the chance to see David Blaine in person, it is pretty special. And this new residency at Resorts World in Las Vegas is an exciting opportunity. Find out more at davidblaine.com and you will open your mind to things that you had never thought possible. Up next, it sure can feel good to be creative, can it? But it actually does much more than that. In a growing Boulder classic, we'll talk with the former director of the National Institute on Aging about how it affects your health as well. That's next on Growing Boulder. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. Hi, Mark Middleton. Welcome back to Growing Boulder. You know, people always ask us who our favorite guests have been over the years, and we've had so many fascinating conversations, it's impossible to pick one. But here's a guy who uh, was one of the top. He's one of the greatest experts on aging ever. He was a gerontologist, a psychologist by the name of Gene Cohen. Uh, Gene was one of the first to look closely at the connection between physical and mental health, and he came on Growing Boulder Radio to talk about the results of a study on the effect of creativity on longevity. So let's go back to 2008 and Dr. Gene Cohen in this Growing Boulder Classic interview. It's a very interesting study. It took place in three different cities. Washington, New York City, and San Francisco. Uh, the average age was interestingly 80, which is greater than life expectancy, with an age range of 65 to 103. So most people would think if you had a positive effect on somebody with an average age of 80, you'd be happy to see less decline. But in fact, 
with the active involvement in the arts, we saw actual improvement. These individuals were involved on a weekly basis, week after week after week, for two years in singing programs, painting, poetry, writing, a range of art programs. And it had a very positive effect on physical health, mental health, social functioning, reduced medication intake, and uh, reduced uh, doctor visits. So it had a very significant broad-based uh, uh, base effect. And, and Dr. Cohen, God bless you for doing this work and, and for having done it for so many years, but there's got to be a degree of frustration for you in that you can create the, the, these very definable results, uh, but yet there's this lag time between the research that you do and the actual implementation of them uh, in, in programming. Uh, these programs would help so many, many people that are now in these assisted living homes, but unfortunately they're not out there that much. Yes, yeah, so this study, fortunately, is starting to uh, attract very significant attention, including among policymakers, because of the impact on cost savings. Uh, you know, with, with its medication effect, just to show you the impact that this can have economically, we all know how expensive medications are, but in the Medicare D eligible population that covers medication for older adults, there are more than 35 million people who are eligible for Medicare coverage for medications. And an eight-cents-a-day savings uh, among the individuals in that population group would translate into a billion dollars a year. Wow. Yeah, it makes great financial sense, but, you know, you there's no question that everybody who knows you feels you're a visionary on aging. But what is it that you see? I mean, these things that you're talking about, you can almost guess the outcome. We know that that if you challenge people, they'll do better and live longer. And if they're engaged and involved, it's got to be better. But what are you seeing that so many people miss? Well, part of it goes back to the theoretical basis for the study. There were two earlier bodies of research uh, that we drew upon in designing the study. One is the area called sense of control. And what that area of research showed that People of all age groups, when they experience situations where they develop a new sense of mastery, a new sense of control in terms of what they're doing, they feel better about themselves and they have better health outcomes. This is from the young to the old. However, older adults have the strongest, most robust effect. And after this was initially identified through behavioral research, they were studied biologically and essentially found to have an immune system boost. Uh, with this experience, ongoing development of a sense of mastery and control, uh, the, the impact of the mind and the immune system producing more cells to ward off infection and even to attack cancer cells. And so this was, a, this was a critical factor. And then we also drew upon research that showed that when you have strong social supports, interpersonal engagement, there too you get an immune system boost. And we brought these two areas together, sense of control, mastery, and and, and, and working with art week after week after week and people saying, regardless of their age, I can't believe I'm improving, and then doing this with other people where you have very powerful group support, all of this had a very important impact on the immune system, and that probably explained the uh, robust results in the study. Fascinating stuff. We are talking with Dr. Gene Cohen, one of the world's top experts on aging and the human mind. Uh, and Dr. Cohen, I read a, a, a study not long ago that said people fear dementia more than they do cardiac arrest, more than they do cancer, more than just about anything. Um, the good news is, is, is that we do have some degree of control over our future in regards to dementia, don't we? 
in in the sense that we can do things that challenge our our brains and hence our minds. Uh, what we have the potential of doing is uh, strengthening the degree of our our brain reserve. So let me just be concrete about that. We now know that when we challenge our, our, our minds, our, our brain sprouts new brain cells. We used to think that we had all of our brain cells by the age of three, but we now know that that's not true, and we know that mental challenge and environmental stimulation actually induces the formation of new brain cells. And then with the existing cells, that same influence of mental challenge and environmental stimulation causes the existing cells to sprout new projections, like a tree sprouting new branches. And this brings about improved communication, new connections among the existing cells to improve the efficiency of the way the brain works. So if you're at risk for Alzheimer's disease, an ongoing brain fitness program of challenging your mind can probably delay the onset of the disease for some some period of time. It, it's so, just it's just incredible. So where do you think we're headed with all this? What is aging going to be like in the coming generations? Well, the big change that's occurred is our discovery that there are things that we ourselves can do to increase our overall fitness. I mean, we've learned that if we do physical exercise, we can improve our physical fitness. We now know with challenging our minds, we can improve brain fitness. And through the creativity studies that I've been doing, this has an overall effect on the body as a whole because of the positive effect in the immune system. It's almost like we're talking about creativity fitness. And, and these are all, these fitness programs are all things that we can do ourselves. We used to think for over 3,000 years that the only way uh, to make a difference is if we had a magic bullet, a, a pill that would change, uh, turn things around. Well, people are still waiting for the, uh, the magic bullet, but we now know that there are a host of things that we can do that can have an impact on our health and well-being. Finally, Dr. Cohen, I know you're a big believer in something that we feel strongly about, and that is intergenerational connection. Hanging out with younger people is a good thing for, for us as we age, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, it, it, uh, this is what the family is all about, different, uh, different generations, and, and too often in different segments of society, uh, uh, we don't see much, enough of this interaction, but it's, it's healthy uh, for, for all the different age groups, and that is a major part of my research is to foster, uh, foster intergenerational play, and one of the ways that I've approached that is developing intergenerational uh, board games. You know, that interview, Bill, is so valuable. The founder of the Washington, D.C. Center on Aging, uh, unfortunately, he passed away in 2009, less than a year after that interview. But the work that he did is extending the lives of others to this day, the quality of their lives to this day, and will most likely impact yours as well. Great information in that Growing Boulder classic interview. Isn't it interesting how everything he said then impacts us even more today. And despite the amazing work of people like Dr. Cohen, none of us live forever. But sometimes we can revisit the past. You know, back in 1980, Mark, the women's basketball team at Hollywood Christian High won the state championship in Florida. Well, how about this? 42 years later, they got back together on the court once more. After a year-long pandemic postponement, the 2022 National Senior Games were framed as a reunion for the ages. The thrill of reconnecting with friends, teammates, 
and the tight-knit community of Masters athletes was felt everywhere in Fort Lauderdale, but perhaps nowhere more than on the basketball court. I wouldn't rather take the court with any other girls in my high school, the homies from 1980, and now 42 years later, we've named our team Challenger 6.0 because we're not getting older, we're getting better. You're not getting older, you're getting bolder. All right, now you got it. The Challengers didn't just play together in 1980, they were state finalists playing right here in Broward County. And even though they're now spread out, living in multiple states, they've returned to their old stomping grounds to reconnect with one another and the sport they once loved. The Challengers are back. We're back. We're back strong. How does it Absolutely. feel to be back? Feels great. Feels great to be out with the girls from 40 years ago and just reconnecting with everybody. It's awesome. It feels really good because we all loved each other. We had each other's backs during high school, and it's just great to see everybody again. And it's not just a reunion of teammates. Two of their cheerleaders pulled out their old pom-poms as well. Did you guys practice a little? Do you still have the same moves? We, we practiced in the car driving here. <laughs> I can't remember what I ate for dinner last night, but I can remember a cheer from, you know, 1970-something. So what's the moral of the story? What do you say to people out there that might be sitting on the couch that have stopped doing stuff and they see you now? What do you tell them? Get up. Get up. You can do it. Friendships never die. Get your old team together. The sport allows us to reignite the athlete within us. And this is my time, you know, Um, my time to just rediscover who I was. I was an athlete from age 8 to age 20. That's the beauty of sports. It brings people together. We would not be reunited. We'd still be just connecting on Facebook if it wasn't for sports. What a great story, Mark. I guess the point is rediscover who you were. Think about the things you loved in your youth and the friends that you did them with and reach out. You never know how reconnecting with yesterday could make a difference in your life today. Up next, what can a little splish splash do for you? Well, we're going to find out from a 96-year-old swimmer. This is Growing Boulder. to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. The following interview was recorded before the passing of our guest. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. In the little town of Port Moody, British Columbia, Canada, lives a woman by the name of Mary Ann Cooper who has become the biggest celebrity in her area. At 106 years old, she's still gardening, still involved in her community, and still making a difference in the lives of others. I first met Mary Ann 10 years ago, and even then, she was nothing short of a major inspiration. There's plenty to cheer about at the U.S. Masters Swimming National Championships, including the presence of a dozen former Olympians. 
But this is something we can all cheer about, the growing number of stereotype-smashing older competitors. I'm going to try to finish before dark. <laughs> the oldest competitor in the meet is 96-year-old Mary Ann Cooper, a retired biologist who's traveled to Arizona from British Columbia, Canada. You've got to keep the old engine going, and uh, if you can get around, why not? <laughs> this old engine runs strong every day, according to Mary Ann's daughter, who is also competing. She lives every day at the fullest, and she never lets one challenge get by her. She goes every challenge. She says, I can do it, and uh, she does it, and sometimes slower, sometimes it takes her longer, sometimes she has, you know, but she does it. And today, she's doing it in the pool, competing in her specialty, the 100-yard backstroke, or as she calls it, an adventure. What do you enjoy most? What's the most fun for you in life? Adventures. <laughs> I like to explore and investigate things and get into things. I love projects, and I especially like to uh, work with people. You are very attractive. I, I, bet, I bet you've got men trying to take you out all the time. I'm looking for a tall, dark, and handsome one. <laughs> you still like the guys, huh? Of course. They're fun to do things with. I like them when they're adventuresome and lively and imaginative and uh, interested in everything. Marianne isn't trying to be a role model or even set an example, but with every stroke, she's doing just that. Everybody has a gift of life, and if they don't use it, they're missing out on some good adventures. The good Lord gave us a, a gift, and if we don't use them, we lose them. The more you let it go by, the less it is. Marianne's secret to long life is staying active, and her secret to enjoying life is celebrating the little things. I'm always looking for the, the little miracles, of, uh, not big, big things, but the little miracles, the nice, happy little things that happen are the most wonderful part of life. Like competing in the national championships with your 70-year-old daughter. Marianne Cooper didn't come here to win her age group, but she did. And she didn't come here to win the respect of every other competitor, but she did that as well. Another of life's little miracles. What an incredible attitude she has. Uh, she certainly has the kind of outlook that you would think it takes to live a long, fulfilling life. And what was it, she said? Always looking for life's little miracles. Well, 10 years after meeting her, Marianne still has a curiosity for life, a respect for the environment, and a desire to inspire. She is certainly living an inspiring life in her 106th year. what's on my mind, and Bill, it's always on my mind, so if it sounds redundant, I apologize for that, but a quarter of American adults are physically inactive. They don't do anything at all, and as we get older, the number, uh, the percentage of adults who don't do anything continues to increase, and I just read something about a guy from Harvard University. Daniel Lieberman is a professor of human evolutionary biology. He's written a new book called Exercise, and he says that the most 
debilitating, divisive myth of all is the fact that older adults should not exercise. And it's really interesting because he talks about hunter-gatherers who lived 10,000 to 12,000 years ago. And in those societies, in those cultures, the older adults, the elderly, never got to be frail. And people immediately think, yeah, but this was 10,000 years ago, and the average life expectancy was 30, which is true. But that's because of the, the amazing numbers of uh, infant mortality, the amazing numbers of people dying from disease or whatever. But the people who avoided all of that did live to be 70 and 80. And those who did in the hunter-gatherer culture were not frail. We have this onslaught of frail elderly today. And he says it's a vicious cycle that when we stop working out, we lose our fitness. When we lose our fitness, we open ourselves up to all sorts of chronic diseases. And when that happens, it is the beginning of the end. So the moral of the story, and he says it's incontrovertible. Now we got to get off the couch and we've got to exercise. You know, I don't think all the time doctors are up on that, Mark, because how often do you go and you say you have an ache and pain or an illness and they say, well, go home and rest. And we kind of grow up believing that in order to heal ourselves, we have to isolate ourselves and rest and lay down and don't do anything until we feel better. But I know there have been a lot of studies that point to the opposite. Mm. The sooner you get back on the horse, the sooner you get back to the gym, get back out there, the healthier you get. It is. It is incontrovertible evidence these days, Bill, and we can no longer kind of tiptoe around it. You know, it's tough love, folks. You don't have to be an athlete. We're not trying to get you to run a marathon, but we need you to understand that you have to get off the couch and you have to get moving. So what about the yeah buts out there? Because I have a lot of them, too. Say, well, my knee hurts. Uh, yeah, but I, I might get injured if I work out or if I go for a walk, I could slip and fall. You know, there's a million reasons not to do it. Uh, absolutely. And you should talk to your doctor about it. But to your point, Bill, more doctors get it now than ever before. Uh, you really do have to get moving or you will become one of the frail elderly. And by the way, the, the cost to become frail as you age is incredible. The five most prevalent diseases of older adults, four are preventable chronic diseases that you can not get if you get active. These are the kind of conversations, Mark, we all need to be having and the kind you only hear on Growing Boulder. See what a difference it makes to have hope, inspiration, and possibility in your life. The Growing Boulder radio show is a production of Growing Boulder, LLC. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, high and mighty trap. Countless fires.